people say, that's impressive. When they see something beautiful or amazing, I think of the eighth grade kid that won the spelling bee and $50,000 by spelling the word Samophile. Samophile. P-S-A-M-M-O-P-H-I-L-E. Samophile. Maybe you think of a beautiful painting, like the portrait of Adele Block Bauer, portrayed in the movie titled Woman in Gold. This painting was stolen by the Nazis in World War II, and it's presently valued at just under $200 million. That's impressive. Or we hear of a man who built his business from the ground up. Warren Buffett started by selling chewing gum and magazines door to door. He used the profits from that to buy a pinball machine, which he set up in a local barber shop. Then he used the profits from that one pinball machine to set up pinball machines all over town. And today his company, Berkshire Hathaway, is worth $991 billion. Not bad, starting with chewing gum and pinball machines. We love to be impressed. We go on vacations to see beautiful and amazing things. Uh, recently, our family went to Zion and Bryce National Parks. Wow. Some of the most popular videos on YouTube have to do with breathtaking locations, amazing feats of strength, and animals that will blow your mind. We look through telescopes because we want to be amazed. And thankfully, we have a God who loves to amaze. He has created all kinds of wonderful things for us to see, to hear, and to experience. Things that the Lord has created for us to enjoy. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8. And I've titled the message today, The Glorious Creator crowns the little man. The smallness of man gives him a wonderful vantage point from which to appreciate the bigness and the big-heartedness of God. Our smallness puts us in a great place where we can view God's bigness. Our humble state puts us in a position, a great position, for us to experience extreme awe and extreme gratefulness at the blessings and the honors that God bestows on us. The glorious creator crowns the little man. And I think as we go through the text, you're going to see that that title kind of sums up the whole chapter. Psalm chapter 8 proclaims God's glory as seen in his creation. And we are, we are embarking on a, a sermon series on the issue of creation, beginning with last Sunday. 
in the text, we see that God's creation is breathtaking. And we, we, as humans, we seem so tiny and insignificant in comparison. Yet God has exalted us. He has crowned us. He has set his affections on us and given us dominion over his creation. What a God we serve. How excellent is his name. Why don't you stand for the reading of God's word? And as we read, you'll notice that the psalm begins and ends with the same words. Psalm chapter 8, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word. Open our hearts to receive from you what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So before verse 1, you see there's a little prescript there. It says, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. So here we see that the psalm was written by David. It was meant to be sung. There's a choir master. And the Gittith is likely a stringed instrument. Maybe something like Caleb played this morning. Probably not. There are three psalms that were made to be accompanied by the Gittith, Psalm 8, Psalm 81, and Psalm 84. And right away in the text, we see God's glory in his name. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In short, David says, God, you are impressive. You're majestic. Majestic means beautiful, dignified, or impressive. O Yahweh, our Adonai, how impressive is your name throughout all the earth. You are an international God. Your fame has spread across the globe. O Lord, our Lord, you are the Lord and ruler of everything, and you are our Lord. You are the Lord of our lives. Whether we like it or not, 
Lord, you rule over us. But we, we bow our knees willingly. We surrender our lives. We call you our Lord. Now, the world may defy you, God. The world may snub your name, but we subject ourselves willingly to your lordship. You'll notice at the beginning, there's two words that in English say Lord. We're actually looking at two different Hebrew words here. The first Lord is all in caps. It is the word Yahweh, the name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. Literally, it means I am. And Jews, even to this day, they write this name without the vowels in an effort to keep the name holy, to not desecrate the name. The second occurrence of the word Lord is not all in caps. This is the Hebrew word Adonai, which is the common word the Jews use for God. It means Lord or Master. So the psalmist speaks of the name of God because names are important. And you see that throughout the Bible. Adam's first job was to name the animals. At the burning bush, God tells Moses his name. It's hard for us to get our brains around something unless it has a name, unless we have a word to describe it. In the animated film Lion King, Scar approaches the hyenas, and they're startled at first. But then Bonsai, one of the hyenas, he says, Oh, Scar, it's just you. And then Shenzi adds, We were afraid it was somebody important. Yeah, you know, like Mufasa. Yeah, now that's power. Tell me about it. I just hear that name and I shudder. Mufasa. Oh, do it again. Do it again. Mufasa. Oh, they cringe when they hear the name Mufasa. Not because of the arrangement of vowels and consonants, but because of the strength of the lion. Mufasa stands for justice. Our God has a name. And his name is majestic because it represents him. His greatness, his character, the great deeds that he has accomplished. In James 2.19, it says that the demons believe and tremble. They tremble at the great name of our God. In the New Testament, the saints cast out demons in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. Luke 10, 17, Jesus' followers return saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 1 Corinthians 6, 11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. The name of the Lord strikes fear in the hearts of his enemies. Psalm 8, verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Jesus actually refers to this text in Matthew 21, verse 16. 
at the triumphal entry, the chief priests and the scribes, they're in a rage because the children are saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And the priests come up to Jesus and they attack him saying, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus responds, basically says, yeah, have you read Psalm 8? Have you ever read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? Or maybe you, another version, you have ordained praise. These children worship the God-man Jesus, and he does something interesting. He accepts their worship, subtly acknowledging that he is God. And Jesus powerfully makes the point that Psalm 8 is expressing here. God uses little ones to overcome his enemies. God used Isabel and Josiah this morning to overcome his enemies. All the arguments of the chief priests and the scribes topple to the ground as the children chant, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. God even use, uses babies to establish strength over his foes. He used miracle babies like Isaac, John the Baptist, and Jesus himself. And Satan knows this. That's why he led Herod to kill the babies in Bethlehem. That's why he is so upset that we in the United States of America have overturned Roe v. Wade. But despite Satan's efforts, he could not snuff out God's Messiah. In Psalm 8-2, it says strength. But when Jesus quotes it, he says praise. And some have questioned, did Jesus misquote Psalm 8 verse 2? And commentator Mark Edward, he points out, oh, I skipped a lot of slides. <laughs> he says, note in Psalm 8 that this strength is coming from mouths. In the context of of a psalm that is praising God. It is not a stretch to think that the psalm talks about praise from infants' mouths. Moreover, the New Testament seldom quotes the Old Testament word for word, but rather refers to the meaning of the text as it is related to the topic at hand. So we see the word strength in verse 2. Why do you need strength? One big reason is to fight and be victorious against your enemies. Why does the United States and other countries build up their military? Maybe you say we build it up too much. But we do so for protection in case enemies attack. If you have enemies, you need strength. My brother-in-law is six foot one, and his biceps are the size of my head. And I remember walking with him through a dangerous part of Atlanta, and he asked me, he said, are you scared? I replied, no, I've got you. <laughs> Moreover, more importantly, we have God. He is strong. 
his enemies happen to be our enemies. And at the end of verse 2, Christ uses three words to describe the enemies. Foes, enemy, and avenger. Now, the first two simply speak about opposition. God's enemies oppose him. Now, the third word is avenger. This enemy, likely Satan himself, is looking for revenge. He wants to get back at God. If you remember, God threw him out of heaven. God has threatened to crush his head and to torture him forever in the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20. Satan is fiercely seeking revenge. Satan is a powerful being. The Bible refers to him as a roaring lion or a dragon. And God's great power will be seen when he destroys this great enemy. We often see God's glory in comparisons and contrasts. Satan is powerful, but God is more powerful. Man is finite, but God is infinite. Man is small, but God is big. As humans, we find ourselves in this wonderful position to observe the impressiveness of our God. We are tiny specks on a tiny planet in an incomprehensibly large universe. The vastness of the universe is meant to give us a picture of the grandness of God. So next, we see God's glory in the universe. Verse 1 again, you have set your glory above the heavens. The heavens is a word the Bible uses to refer to the sky. From our perspective, we stand on earth and we look up. Everything above us is heavens. The sky where birds fly. The atmosphere around our planets. And on into outer space that contains a vast array of stars, planets, comets that only have a lifespan of 10,000 years or less, FYI. And, uh, and there is no Oort cloud. It's never been found. There's no evidence to support it. But those, everything above us, are heavens. God's glory is above the heavens. Now, that could mean that above and beyond the sky we see, there is a grand display of the glory of God. Or it could mean that God's glory is greater than the heavens. One translation says, your glory is higher than the heavens. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens above speak to the bigness of God and the smallness of man. There are around 8 billion people on earth. I am not even one in a million. I'm not one in a billion. There are 126 billion acres of land on earth, and I take up a space of about two square feet. The earth is massive compared to me. I weigh about 180 pounds. The earth weighs around 6 billion trillion metric tons. So if you're feeling a little overweight, 
You're just comparing yourself to the wrong thing. Six billion trillion metric tons. That is a six followed by 25 zeros. I am one tiny human in this massive world. But compared to the universe, the planet I live on is very small. Compared to other stars, our sun is about average size. You can fit 1.3 million Earths into the volume of our sun. But there are stars much larger than our sun. UY Scuti is the largest star we know about, and you can fit 5 billion, not of our Earths, 5 billion of our suns inside of UY Scuti. Verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Why do you think about him at all? And the son of man that you care for him. Verse 3, creation is referred to as the work of God's fingers. How many fingers does God have? Does God have fingers? Negatory. This is called anthropomorphism. It's where human characteristics are attributed to God. Uh, the psalmist talks about the wings of God. He doesn't have wings either. Um, but, or the strong arm of the Lord, or the eyes of the Lord that move to and fro. The point is that creating this universe is nothing for God. It was a simple task. He didn't use his legs. He didn't use his arms or even the full strength of his hands. Just his fingers. Also in verse 3, we see that God set the moon in place. The moon orbits the earth once every 27 point something days. And our moon, based on its relative size to earth, the planet it orbits, is the largest moon in our galaxy. It travels 2,288 miles per hour. Every year, the moon is moving one to one and a half inches away from the Earth. The Earth and the moon are in a delicate balance that could not have lasted millions or billions of years. We see in Genesis 1 that the moon was created on day four of creation. And using the Bible timeline, that would have been about 6,000 years ago. God gave us just the right size moon. And he set it in just the right place, orbiting around earth. The moon is essential for life on earth. Without the moon... Most, if not all, life in the sea and on the land would die. The moon gives us our tides, which support life in the ocean. Also, the tides mix the warm waters of the tropics with the cold waters of the poles, keeping our climate relatively stable. Without the moon, we would experience extreme temperatures that could decimate life on Earth. They would decimate life on Earth. Also, the moon slows the spin of the Earth, 
so that we have 24-hour days, and it stabilizes the tilt of the earth. Without the moon, scientists say that the tilt of the earth on its axis could change between 10 and 45 degrees, and that would have cataclysmic effects on our seasons, our weather patterns. Uh, um, some scientists say we might end up with six-month days. Six months of days, followed by six months of night. So if you really want to sleep in, there's your chance. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Not... which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? In verse 4, the word care can be translated as care or it can be translated as visit. I thought that was interesting. What is man that you care for him or what is man that you visit him? Over and over throughout Scripture, you see that our God has visited his people. He has visited them, giving prophecies to Abraham and to Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, it says that the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived. I think Elkanah also visited Hannah as well. God has visited his people with prosperity. God has visited his people with judgment or discipline. In Luke 1.68, it refers to the coming of Christ as a visitation. In 1 Peter 2.12, it refers to the return of Christ as a visitation. I look forward to that visitation. So this Hebrew word can be translated visit or care. Which makes sense, because when you care for someone, you visit them. Our God is anything but indifferent. He is not a stoic. He cares deeply for his creation, and especially for his people. It is shocking to me that God would care about us at all. If you think about it, how often do you think about something that is so small that you would have to look through an electron microscope in order to see it? Compared to God, we are infinitesimal. I had to look that up. I didn't know how to pronounce that word. Infinitesimal. I thought it was infinitesimal, but it's actually infinitesimal. And it's amazing that God would ever spare a thought on us. And yet he has put us at the center of his affections. He did not send his son to die on the cross for anything else in the entire universe. Just us. That is how special we are to him. It's shocking. God loves us and he thinks about us all the time. Psalm 139, 17 through 18 how precious are your thoughts for me, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. Do you know how much sand there is on earth? I have been so busy counting sand this week. <laughs> Scientists have calculated an estimate of 
seven quintillion, five hundred quadrillion grains of sand. That's a seven, then a five, followed by 17 zeros. That's how much God thinks about you. That's how many thoughts he has about you. He thinks about you all the time, and he loves you very much. We also see God's glory in man's humility. Verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Why would God care for tiny, insignificant creatures like us? It's baffling, yet he does. Verse 5, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. We're, we're lower than the angels. We have less power than the angels. Yet in many ways, God has treated us better than the angels. Jesus did not die for angels. Even the elect angels have not experienced the glory of God's mercy. They don't know what it's like to have your sins forgiven. They haven't tasted grace like us. In the plan of salvation, the angels were kept in the dark. It was revealed to them when it happened to us. 1 Peter 1.12 refers to the gospel as, quote, things into which angels long to look. Man has been made low, but has been greatly honored by God. Next, we see God's glory in, number four, man's exaltation. Verse six, you, God, God, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Interesting phrase there, paths of the seas. Ponce de Leon happened upon the paths of the seas. In April of 1513, he was traveling from east to west upon the Gulf Stream. And in his ship log, dated April 22nd, 1513, he wrote, Our ships had entered a current such that, although they had great wind, they could not proceed forward, but backward. And it seems that they were proceeding well. At the end of it was known that the current was more powerful than the wind. <clears throat> so Ponce de Leon, not realizing it, he happened upon the Gulf Stream, one of the greatest and the strongest paths of the sea. The wind was blowing the right way. It was blowing in his direction, but the current was so strong that he was going backwards. Matthew Mari, do we have a picture for that one? There we go, okay. He was a U.S. naval officer, and he is known as the pathfinder of the sea. Mari, along with working for the Navy, he was an astronomer, a historian, a meteorologist, a cartographer, an author, a geologist, and an educator, and a committed Christian. He was a staunch believer in the Bible 
as a source of science. CBN calls him the father of modern oceanography. And after an injury, he was placed in charge of the depot of charts and, and instruments of the Hydrographic Office of the United States Navy from 1841 to 1861. And one day when he was sick in bed, his daughter came in to keep him company. And she read to him from Psalm chapter 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? You have given him dominion over the fish of the sea and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And he meditated on that verse. The paths of the sea. The paths of the sea. And he pondered that there must be currents in the oceans. And he determined that he would discover what those paths were. And using the charts and the logbooks that were available to him through the United States military, he discovered and charted many of the ocean currents and the wind circuits, including the great Gulf Stream that comes out of the Gulf of Mexico and flows into the Atlantic Ocean. The Gulf Stream is 40 miles wide and it is 2,000 feet deep. Mari, also known as the scientist of the ocean, he also charted other sea lanes, including the Japanese current and the California current and others. Mari's charts of the paths of the sea revolutionized ocean travel. Sailing times were reduced by weeks or even months on longer voyages. According to Gibson, the commercial impact was phenomenal. It was almost as if jet planes had been introduced to transatlantic travel. And it's interesting, at this very time, Charles Darwin was going around pushing his theory of evolution and attacking the Bible, while Matthew Murray was proclaiming the scientific accuracy of the Bible. Murray said it this way, the Bible is true and science is true. And to paraphrase, the truth of one proves or supports the truth of the other. Mari's textbook on oceanography is still taught in universities today. Because of his confidence in God's word, Mari knew to look for these currents, these paths in the sea. Ponce de Leon stumbled upon them in the 1500s, and Mari charted them in the 1800s, but David around 3,000 years ago, wrote about them. Interesting thing, the only seas that David or the Israelites would have known about would be the Mediterranean Sea, the Red Sea, and the inland lakes such as the Sea of Galilee or the Dead Sea, none of which have currents flowing through them. Likely, David wrote about this never having seen an ocean. And yet God used David to reveal to us the paths of the sea. In verse 6, David refers to the dominion that God has given to man. Here the psalmist is referring to day 6 of creation, back in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1.26, God makes man in his own image. Nothing in all the universe has been made in God's image, only us. 
Then God gives man dominion over the earth and all the things on the earth that he has created on days three, five, and six. He gives man dominion over animals in three realms, land, air, and water. Dominion over the beasts of the field, over the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. In Genesis 1.28, God tells man to be fruitful and to multiply. He tells Adam and Eve to fill the earth with people, have lots of babies. Psalm 127, 3 through 5, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. God wants a planet full of people. Because ultimately, God wants people all over the world worshiping him in all different languages. It's all heading towards Revelation chapter 7, where an innumerable multitude of people from all tribes and peoples and languages will stand before the throne of God and they will worship him, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In Genesis chapter 1, God says, Be fruitful. And then he tells Adam and Eve to take over the world. Now, we live in a culture that has exalted animals and belittled humanity. The Bible does the opposite. God says, fill the earth and subdue it. Take control. Every time you put a leash on a dog or a saddle on a horse, you are following this command. Every time you put a cow in a stall or you slaughter a chicken for your dinner, you are taking dominion. Every time you catch a fish on your hook and you take that fish to the barbecue, when you landscape your property or you mow your lawn, you are taking dominion. When you divert waterways and you pipe water into and out of your house, when we create dams like the Hoover Dam that bring water to millions of people and electricity to millions of people, when we create creeks and water treatment plants and we pipe water wherever we want it to go, we are taking dominion. Jesus made the statement, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Similarly, the earth was made for man, not man for the earth. Chop down that tree and build your house. How many of you are living in a wood house today? Any of you willing to shamefully admit that you live in a wood house? That tree was made for you. But don't chop down too many trees because the oxygen they produce was also made for you. And you want to make sure that there are trees in 50 to 100 years so that your grandchildren and their children have air to breathe and lumber to build their houses. Asterisk, watch the Lorax. <laughs> have you ever had a home aquarium? You buy the aquarium, 
You get the chlorine out of the water. I don't know why we drink it and they can't live in it, but that's reality. You fill the aquarium. You put the fish in with some stones and some shells and some decorative things. Why? Why so much care? It's for the fish. You're being a little creator. You want the fish to have a nice life in the world that you have created for him. The fish is not put in there to serve the pebbles or the aquarium decorations. No, those are put in there to serve the fish. God has been very clear. In essence, he has said, I made this world for you. God has exalted us. He has blessed us. And that shows us how glorious he is. God couldn't have given us all of these wonderful things if he didn't possess them first. Or if he didn't possess the power to speak them into existence. But he has possessed them. He has created them. And he has blessed us by giving them praise his name. The fact that we have been given dominion over the earth does not speak to our own personal greatness, but it speaks to the greatness of our benefactor. The one who has given us all of this is quite impressive. More impressive than Warren Buffett. Verse 6 says that God has given mankind dominion over his creation. As people, we, have, we all have a little bit of dominion over a small part of the world. But Christ, as the Son of Man, or the God-Man, has been given dominion over all things. Ephesians 1.22 alludes back to Psalm 8, verse 6, saying that God has put all things under Jesus' feet. Hebrews chapter 2 quotes Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, and applies the text directly to Jesus Christ. Jesus, the one who died on the cross for our sins, the one who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, God the Father has given this Jesus ultimate dominion. Collectively, humans exercise dominion over the world. But even that dominion is under the greater dominion, under the lordship of Jesus Christ, whom God has put over all things. It is glorious. And so the psalmist ends, Psalm 8, right where he began. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Why don't you stand and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as minuscule people in a vast universe, we see your glory in the sun, the moon, and the stars that you have set in place. And we are shocked that you would crown us with glory, that you would honor us, that you would set your affections upon us, that you would give us dominion over this world that you have created. And we say, Lord, our Lord, we bow our knees before Jesus Christ. We bow our knees willingly. Some, all will bow, many by force. 
but we bow our knees willingly before Jesus who has the ultimate dominion over all things. Oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.